Hello and welcome to Cybernia, a podcast exploring science in Ireland and beyond, in association with Discover Science and Engineering. I'm Sylvia Leatham, and with me in studio today is Lenny Antonelli and our producer Gavin Byrne. You can find us online at cybernia.ie or download the latest episode from iTunes. And you can email us at podcast at cybernia.ie. On the show today, we have an astronomy theme. We'll be talking to an astronomer and artist who runs workshops that inspire children to look at the night sky. Lenny went to Galway to find out about the latest discovery among the stars in pulsar research. And for something completely different, we'll also be talking about the new technologies that could make animal dissection a thing of the past for biology students. Deadly Moons is the name of a children's project run by Bray-based artist and amateur astronomer Deirdre Callahan. The project promotes awareness of astronomy by involving kids in a series of fun drawing workshops. Deadly Moons has just won an award recognising its educational value from a prestigious US science organisation. And we have Deirdre on the line now to tell us more about her work. Deirdre, welcome to the show. Thanks, Sylvia. Uh, I love the name of the project, Deadly Moons. <laughs> uh, can you tell us a bit more about it? Oh, well, the name of the project came about because I often show the moon um, to children in my telescope. And uh, in every group, there would be several children who would say, that's deadly, you know, because right. it's a very Irish kind of saying. And uh, street words, if you know what I mean. Yeah. They, they really kind of go, wow. and But they don't say, wow. They say, is it deadly. deadly so, yeah. It's a yeah. word I use a lot myself, I have yeah, to really. say, as a Dubliner. Yeah. So, um, you know, um, as everybody knows, or most people know, it means awesome. Yes. <laughs> really cool. So um, I developed a drawing workshop um, kind of based on the, the reaction I was getting of our moon through the telescope. Okay, so uh, what kind of ages of, of kids are we talking about and can you tell us about the format of the Yeah, uh, the children that m- suit my workshop best are about for 7 to 12 year old children. Okay. Um, and but the format is uh, a presentation that's about half an hour long um, where I show the children our moon, of course, uh, in different phases and those images are mixed in with some very, very exotic-looking moons from our solar system. And, um, you know, I I present each of the moons or each of our moon's phases uh, with a little story or or something interesting so that they would connect with it, if you know what I mean, that they Mm -hmm. would remember um, whatever I've said because I've connected it to, uh, like, maybe a film, you know, like one of the features of the moon is the Terminator. It's the line that demarks daylight on the moon from night time on the moon. So, you know, most children between those ages would have heard of the movie Terminator. and they immediately connect. Yeah. So you're making little little um, memory connections for them. Okay. Um, or I would tell another couple of little stories that would be significant to their age group and it helps them remember what I'm saying to them. Okay. okay. And then um, when we when we come to the end of the presentation, I get them to choose the moon that they want to draw by getting them to give me a big yay if they really <laughs> like it or a boo if they don't. You know, okay. so we go back, flip back through them. So it becomes a sort of pantomime <laughs> and, and quite vocal and uh, quite fun. The whole thing is quite vocal because I, I get them to tell me a story. I'm telling them a story and I get them to tell me a story. Okay, during it's it. interactive. So it, it can kind of uh, go a bit kind of, uh, it's quite flexible. Um, but, it, the, the, you know, at, at halfway point, they vote 
And then when we give out the paper, they use soft pastels, beautiful colours, black paper, and then they start to produce the moon that they like, the moon that has inspired them. Um, and usually they produce absolutely stunning work, mm. you know. I was actually looking at some of the images on your website, Deirdre, yeah. and they, they are gorgeous, mm, actually. The mm, pictures mm. are really, really nice. And it's often a child's first experience using pastels on black paper, and they love it, you know. Mm, it's mm. fabulous to, uh, to blend the colours. Um, you can get great textures going with them. And so they're, they're having a, a, like a, a good creative experience as well as a learning experience. Yeah, it sounds like a great uh, combination. And uh, I believe the project is especially aimed at kids in disadvantaged areas. Well, um, you, my, my workshop has been run in all kinds of communities in, in Ireland with children of various backgrounds. Okay. Um, Universal Awareness for Young Children, which is the organisation who I gave my project to for to use in 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 other countries, you know, in the developing world or whatever it is they want to use it in. Um, you know, most of the people that I've used it uh, here in Ireland, um, I wouldn't have described them as disadvantaged, you know. Okay. Um, but I have run the program in in rural area schools, inner city schools. I've run it for immigrants. Um, and uh, from children from very diverse backgrounds, you know. I see, yes. Um, and, yeah. and actually, to, in, in my opinion, actually, um, in essence, uh, children, uh, young children are disadvantaged if they are uneducated or undereducated mm. yep. to, the, to the beauty and the wonder of our solar system, no matter where they come from. Right. You know, so there's different ways of looking at disadvantage, you know. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And how did you um, start to get involved in this? Uh, why, why did you start the workshop? Why did I start the workshop? Yeah. <laughs> well, I, uh, I've been involved in informal uh, outreach education since 2004. So I, I was writing kind of um, interesting talks. Well, uh, my audience thought they were interesting, I'll say that much. Okay. <laughs> and um, I'm an artist as well, like, you know, as an amateur astronomer, and I'm quite mm. enthusiastic about space exploration. So I, I wanted to do a workshop that would combine all those things and be uh, an interesting educational package, if you like, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and as I say, children w- would look at the moon in my telescope and go, that's deadly, you know. And I mean, the moon is a fabulous looking thing in the telescope. But, you know, I mm. realized they, that some of the other moons were stunning, you know, absolutely awesome, totally deadly. <laughs> and uh, to bring those uh, images into classrooms and... Uh, stimulate children into uh, learning a little bit more about our moon and the other moons. And most children, I have to say, didn't even realise that there were other moons. Yeah, yeah, I well, I well believe so, it. So, like, they kind of absolutely, like, astonished at, yeah. at, at, that, that there are other moons and that they are so interesting. Um, tell us a little bit about the, the prize that this, uh, this workshop project won. Well, uh, that's very interesting uh, and I'm, I'm very proud of it actually mm. uh, my workshop Deadly Moons won uh, what's called a SPORE award um, from the American Association for the Advancement of Science now they've been around a long time they've been around since 1880 okay. and they were founded by Thomas Edison Wow! so they kind of got together and decided that my workshop was, was worthy to be recognised so it's a sort of a pat on the back for my workshop and you have a couple of other uh, workshop projects as well, I believe. Oh, I do. I have um, a couple of other workshops that are kind of on the same format. I've got one called The Sun's Massive, 
Again, yes. using what Irish street children would say, that's massive. Yeah. It could be about the latest song in the charts or <laughs> a card I like or whatever or the latest uh, game on the PC. But again, using those kind of phraseologies, you know. Mm. And I have another one called uh, Rapid Rockets and Wicked Robots. Okay. Um, uh, the, the, the sun's massive is all about the sun, of course. Yeah. But the, um, the Rockets and Robots is about the history of space exploration done mm. through drawing. So... I bring them from Sputnik to whatever the latest mission is, like, say, Grail to the Moon, which went off there last week. Oh, on okay. Saturday That's morning. Right. So yeah. if, I, if I was doing the Rockets and Robots one next week somewhere, Grail would be in there, you know, the children would be learning about the latest one. The latest, you know, from yeah, the earliest one to the latest one and all the bits in between. Oh, great. Um, Tierda, this is all sounds fabulous. <laughs> um, so what can people do then if you want to find out more or if they want you to, to run a workshop? Well, they could contact me directly. Um, they could go to my website. Mm-hmm. That's uh, Okay. Um, or they could uh, email me, skysketcher, S-K-Y-S-K-E-T-C-H-E-R, at gmail.com. Great. And, uh, you know, I'm always available. My workshops are varied. The talks are varied. Um, I'm actually uh, doing Deadly Moons in the middle of Ireland in Tipperary on Saturday coming the 17th of September for the Irish Chinese Contract Group. Um, so that should be very interesting because the Chinese uh, culture, Chinese people um, all over the world have what's called a Chinese Moon Festival. Oh. Uh, this from the middle of September to the middle of October. Okay. And it's, it seems to be quite a big thing in their culture to look at the moon and think of people they love. Oh, wow. Nice okay, so that will tie in nicely with that. Yeah, 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 I think so, yeah. That's great. Well, we'll put the link to your website up on our own site, Deirdre. And Excellent. thanks a million for talking to us today. Thanks very much. Sophie. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Now. Bye. now we're staying with the space theme for our next item on the show. Uh, Lenny, you went to Galway last week and spoke to NUIG astronomer Andy Shearer. I believe his team has made an exciting new discovery about pulsars. Um, but I guess actually, first of all, we should say what pulsars actually are. Well, pulsars are incredibly dense and very small uh, stars that emit a pulsating beam of electromagnetic radiation. Um, but I asked Andy to explain uh, pulsars to me in more detail. Uh, a pulsar is a type of star known as a neutron star. Okay. Which is the end product of a, a big star's life. When you get a star which is maybe 8 times, 10 times, 20 times the size of the sun, the mass of the sun, then at the end of its life, which is normally quite short, it will explode in what's known as a supernova explosion. And it will put out all the ejector. And some of the really pretty pictures you see from the Hubble Space yeah. Telescope come from the ejector from those kind of super, well, no, supernova explosions. Okay. The little core which is left behind is the kind of centre of the star, um, maybe about one and a half times the mass of the star, but really small and dense. It would probably fit into Galway Bay. Okay, so incredibly heavy and incredibly small. Incredibly heavy, incredibly small, incredibly dense. And associated with that, incredibly strong magnetic fields. Okay. Magnetic fields which are maybe um, a thousand billion times stronger than the Earth's magnetic field. Not places to be around. If you went anywhere near them, you'd be dragged to bits by the gravity. And if that didn't get you, the magnetic field would. <laughs> um, and they spin, they, they rotate very rapidly. They spin about um, the ones which we've been looking at. One, for example, the Crab Pulsar, 30 times a second. So you can imagine a washing machine travelling at... 
1200 revolutions per second, a really expensive washing machine going at that kind of speed. This is 50% faster than that. So you can imagine something which is about 10, 20 kilometers across, weighing one and a half times the mass of the sun, uh, spinning 1800 times a minute on the fastest spin cycle you can possibly imagine on a washing machine. They're bizarre objects. And when they do this, they generate massive electric fields and those massive electric fields generate what's known as a plasma, and that plasma um, is uh, well known as electrons and anti-electrons will spiral in the magnetic field around the plasma, and in doing so, as the thing spins around, we'll see flashes of radio waves coming around as it spins around, and in some pulsars, and the crab pulsar is one in particular, we'll also see a flash of light. So we can see these from Earth? Yep, we can see them from Earth, we can see them from... You need a reasonably big telescope to actually see the neutron star, because it's really small. But we see the flash of light as the, as the pulsar spins around. So with the crab pulsar, we see a flash of light coming around, um, and in fact, 60 times a second, because when, when it spins around once, it gives us a flash, and then it's halfway around, it gives us another flash of light coming around. Um, and these have been known about since ooh, um, the, the late 60s. Jocelyn Bell, who's an Irish uh, astronomer, um, research student in Cambridge, discovered them as part of her PhD project and there's been good kind of Irish links since then and also before then there have been some, some links in terms of Pulsar. So Lenny, Andy Shearer and his team made a new discovery about Pulsars I believe. What was that? Yeah, Andy and his team at the Centre for Astronomy at Inuit Galway um, made a discover, discovery about uh, where the light that pulsars emit uh, comes from. Now, as I said, pulsars uh, emit uh, this beam of electromagnetic radiation. They can emit light, uh, gamma rays, X-rays. And um, Andy and his team looked at one pulsar, the crab pulsar, um, that does emit light. And what they found was that... Um, from looking at that pulsar and from using computer models, they found that the light comes from a place where they didn't necessarily expect it to come from. We focused on the optical light, which is coming out, and the reason we did this is that the process by which the light comes out is fairly simple. But what we don't know is where it comes from and how the pulsar works and all the details of the kind of the way in which the, kind of the, the pulsar generates this plasma. Um, and to do this, what we wanted to do was to find out where... The, the, the light is coming from. Is it coming from the neutron star surface? Is it coming from a lot further out? Um, or is it coming somewhere somewhere in between? And what we the reason why we chose the optical light is that you can actually look at a property of optical light called the polarisation. That's the kind of orientation as, as the light as it comes through. And that contains information about where the light came from and the geometry, the shape of the region where the light okay. came from. Mm. So we, t- we combined really detailed observations using really big telescopes with some really detailed um, computer simulations using some of the biggest computers which were in Ireland at the time. And from that, we could actually do a process of... We, we call it inverse mapping or reverse engineering. We could say, if we had the, the light which looked like this... Where did it come from? Okay. And then we said, well, basically the light, this is how the light looks, so where does that mean where the light comes from? And it was a, it was a detailed computations which actually managed to, to crack this. And we were really surprised that it comes from a very small region, which is about 200 kilometres above the neutron star surface. And why was that a surprise? Because we expected it either to come from the neutron star surface itself, and that would make sense, or it would come from about 1,600 kilometres away. Now, you think that's not, that's not very far. Two very different regions. Um, away from the neutron star surface, a long way away, is something which is called the light cylinder. 
it's the speed at which, as the pulsar rotates, the magnetic field is rotating at the speed of light. And that can't happen. Kind of physics breaks down at that point. Okay. Everything goes, goes wrong. So, but it was thought at that point you can actually generate all the, the kind of flashes of light. And there were some gamma ray, big gamma ray te- telescopes which were in space which began to hint that the gamma rays were coming from there. But what we showed was that, no, it comes much deeper down in the magnetosphere and is now ruled out at least two, if not all but one, model for the way in which these pul- in which the pulsars work. So finally I asked Andy how many pulsars have been discovered so far and where exactly they are in space. There are over 2,000 known, and they're all reasonably cl- close okay. in astronomical terms. Yeah. Um, the nearest one is probably about 100 light years away. It takes light about 100 years to, to come from. The one which we looked at, um, the light took about 7,000 years. Um, to get here and that's reasonably close it's within our kind of back neighbourhood of the galaxy um, and the reason is that the um, there's a lot of them there but there'll be a lot of them in other places within the galaxy They're the whole sort of galaxy will be populated with these new- neutron stars some of which you can see with the um, naked eye? no, not with the naked eye but some of you can see with big telescopes others will be too faint Okay. Um, and they'll basically cool down so there'll be a lot of kind of dead isolated lumps of neutron star material just floating around there which we'll never be able to see. And are we, are we constantly finding more of them? Um, the radio astronomers are, are finding yeah. many of them. Now the optical ones are very rare. We've, there, are, there are five which have been known to pulsate of which our group discovered two of those and have worked extensively on two of the other ones coming through and we hope in the, in the near future to, to make some detailed observations of the final one. Thanks for that, Lenny. And uh, I believe Andy Shearer is involved with an event that's coming up in Galway soon? He is indeed, yeah. Um, he's involved with the Sea to Sky event, which is taking place as part of European Researchers' Night on Friday the 23rd of September uh, in Galway in Ledgerland. And this is an event that gives a chance for researchers in the fields of marine science, atmospherics and astronomy to present their research to members of the public in interesting and engaging and, and hands-on ways. And you can get more information about that at C2Sky, that's the digit 2, c2sky.ie. Now, if you're listening to this around tea time, I do hope our next topic won't put you off your dinner because we're about to talk about animal dissection in the classroom. The cutting up of dead animals for the purposes of learning and research has for centuries been a standard part of the study of biology and animal dissections have been carried out by secondary school students for decades. But now technology is beginning to offer digital alternatives to the physical slicing up of animals. With us in studio is Craig O'Hare, a third-year science student at Trinity College, focusing on immunology. He's going to talk us through some of the technological advances in this area, and also some of the ethical issues. Craig, welcome to the show. Thanks very much. Um, Let's just start talking about um, what type of dissections uh, a typical science student would, would encounter throughout their career. Well, Sylvia, a student's experience with dissection begins as soon as they uh, decide to go into the leaving cert and study biology, where they, at the very least they must dissect a sheep's heart. If they decide to proceed to third level, they have to dissect a further array of organisms depending on the university's own curriculum. From my own experience, in first year I had to dissect a prawn and a earthworm to earn about body plans. Okay, a prawn is pretty small. Yeah, uh, it was an adult prawn, and the idea was <laughs> we had to learn about... Um, 
it was, it was the idea was to learn about different anatomies and which parts of the body grew first and the specialties of each body part in relation to that. So would a prawn, uh, a claw would grow first, but so it would, you know, um, prioritise defence and feasting. Okay. So um, a prawn and an earthworm. And then in the second year, we'd move on to uh, mice and rats for physiology and immunology modules. Okay, I see. Um, I understand why... Um, medical students would need to be familiar with the inside of a human body but um, why do school children need to cut up frogs for example do you think? The most common reason to do dissection is that the, actually seeing the innards of the organism gives you an impression of how everything works in a much more interactive way than a okay. diagram ever can. Okay, just brings it to life or Pretty in much. this case to death. <laughs> <laughs> um, so for students actually then doing uh, dissections, um, let's talk about some of the, the, the challenges that they, that they might encounter. And I believe you actually did a, a survey of your, your fellow students. You yeah, uh, my cla- myself and some colleagues of mine decided to survey our class with the help of one of our professors. Um, in general, students take issue with the kind of technical aspects of dissection. Uh, what I mean by this is um, the actual physical cutting of the organism itself and trying to find desired uh, features and structures because you're just given a picture uh, or a drawing you're told find this and you're trying to match um, A to B which can be kind of messy as it is given what you're doing um, the majority of students also take issue with the smell because it's not particularly pleasant as you can imagine okay I wouldn't have thought of that but I, I guess yeah but uh, at the same time as well uh, a lot of students take issue with um, the kind of the presentation of the animal on the dissection board or dislike dissection for moral or ethical reasons um, I guess biology is one of those areas where a lot of ethical issues arrive and um, I, I was wondering are students actually taught uh, ethics at university level from my own experience and based on impressions from other courses I have from friends who do the same co- type of courses in different colleges around Dublin and around the country, the, um, unless you're studying something that's dedicated to animal studies like um, zoology or environmental science and or so on and so forth, there isn't a lot of uh, time devoted specifically to ethics. Um, from my own experience, again, I, um, I think we've had one debate on animal welfare in zoos and we'd have a kind of crossover to animal testing. But what was particularly encouraging from the survey uh, that we conducted over my class is that a lot of students uh, felt that uh, ethics was a very necessary part of science that they felt they should be learning more about. Um, In terms of ethical issues that came up then, uh, we investigated this by providing a comment box on our survey so students could tell us, you know, if they objected to something about the dissection, they could, you know, specify and elaborate. And for me, this is one of the more interesting parts of the whole experience um, because uh, some of the comments are very refreshingly honest and very interesting. Okay. Uh, Do you have any examples? Or one student said that um, she took issue with doing that section because she kept um, a mouse and a rat as a pet and it reminded her too much of cutting up her own pets. A lot of students are just refreshingly honest and said, it's gross, I don't like doing this, uh, I feel that uh, the smell is disgusting, I have nightmares now that <laughs> I'm going to be pinned to a dissection board and so on and so forth. Like a horror um, movie. But um, at the same time, because like we got um, a, like, a large volume of um, students also complained about the volume of specimens being used as well, because they felt that, I'm learning enough here to justify doing this, but I don't think we should use 100 rats per class to do this. Is so, that like one per student? Uh, two, um, one per pair. Okay, okay. Um, so even from a resources point of view, there's also like a kind of a practical and ethical justification to look at yeah, alternatives. Yeah. So actually, let's then talk about some of the alternatives. There are, um, I believe, some new technological advances that 
could possibly be used as an alternative? Yeah, there's actually a very wide range available of um, alternatives. And um, I've just brought a selection with me today of uh, that are ones that are particularly good. Um, but the first one that I have here is um, but as, um, a rat dissection app for the iPad that is available on the App Store, and it's uh, $4. It's made by a company called Mantris. And I, I, take my, I think it's particularly good because it basically lets you take dissection anywhere. Yeah. So what was particularly good about this uh, app is that it removes all the practical and technical issues that people had with dissection. So there's no bad smells. Uh, everything's clear, clear out. And what's good, though, what was especially um, uh, good about this uh, is that uh, it's anatomically correct, but it's not entirely photorealistic because it uses some sort of cell shading, which means it's somewhat cartoony in its appearance. So right. the more squeamish of us could do the dissection, and it's not as realistic as, say, actually doing a dissection, but it's still as accurate. So in a demo of it, I was able to use the same tools and the same methods to dissect and look at the organ uh, look at the uh, specimen on the dissection board but so okay. um, if you're squeamish it seems to be a better way to go and do you actually do you, you know do you like touch the screen to yeah the, the, um yeah it's it you trace um you like use like select from a dish of tools you have and you select a knife and then you trace onto the rat uh okay and so much and then like you have to peel things back and pin things right, using right. all the virtual tools yeah, so yeah. it's so very realistic yeah. yeah yeah okay uh what other methods have you got um, this uh, this one here is particularly fantastic. It's um, actually made by Google, and it's called the Google Body Browser. So okay. if you use um, if you use Google Chrome or if you use the latest version of Firefox, um, you can use this program. And the best way I can describe it really is Google Maps for your body. You can browse in two in two ways. There you can browse by uh, by viewing um, layer by layer, almost like an onion. So you can uh, view a digital uh, person and take away the skin and take away the muscle layers, take away the cardiovascular system, the nervous system, and then go down to the skeleton and, and build it all back up. Or what's particularly useful as well, if you're a student like myself, uh, studying something like the immune system or studying physiology, is that you can uh, take away specific layers. So say, for example, um, I want to see how the cardiovascular system, the uh, lymphatic system, which is uh, a large part of the immune system, and organ systems are all linked together. I can emphasize those systems and say, get away, get rid of the screen, the muscles, the skeletal system, and the nervous system, and I can just see what's there and what interacts. Okay. What's particularly good about this one as well is that it's uh, fully searchable. So, say uh, you want to see like a lymph node, or you want to see particular um, valves. So, say for example, if you go to the hospital and you're told all these, you're given like, oh, you have blockages in these blood vessels and stuff like that. You can use uh, the body browser to search for the blood vessels and you can actually okay. see what's wrong. So this is this is publicly available? Yeah, it's free Google. to use as yeah. well. Okay, and I think we just have time for one last one. Uh, my personal favourite here as well is the anatomy table, which is what I can best describe as a giant iPad with an interactive cadaver that you can operate on. It's uh, currently being used in Stanford Medical School by bioengineers who are designing new prosthetic parts, but it has the potential as well to aid doctors in explaining diagnosis to, par- to patients because it's mm-hmm. fully integratable with x-rays, CT scans, MRIs. So say, let's say for like argument, if a patient comes in and they have some sort of disorder, they can, the doctor can um, integrate their um, any imaging data onto the screen and they and demonstrate exactly what's wrong to the patient, which in many ways can help them cope with the diagnosis itself. Because mm. a lot of uh, 
a lot of trauma experience with dissections or um or anything that's kind of scientific is difficult most visualize visual, visualize yeah, it, yeah. yeah yeah and that can almost even if you understand it it kind of helps you deal with it itself yeah yeah absolutely that sounds fantastic well thanks a million for coming in craig and no problem at all. About that. so now we just have time to take a quick look at events uh lenny any good science events coming up in the next few weeks Absolutely, there's lots going on, Sylvia. Um, starting off uh, this Saturday, the 17th of September, the National Aquarium in Galway is running workshops to show you how to get started uh, on doing science in your kitchen. Um, you'll, be mm. able, you'll also be able to see Vinny, who's their new ocean sunfish, uh, while you're there, and you can find out more at uh, nationalaquarium.ie. Um, then uh, on Friday week, the 23rd of September, uh, is Culture Night all across Ireland. Um, the event will see many museums, galleries and cultural centres uh, staying open late across the country. Um, one of those, uh, one of the museums that's staying open is the Natural History Museum in Dublin, which will be running kids' workshops from around 4pm. And um, the museum will stay open uh, until 9pm with some uh, rare and unseen collections coming out for, for one night only. Oh, great. I love that museum. Yeah, absolutely. Um, then on Saturday the 24th of September Neve Donoghue is going to lead a walk uh, of the Botanic Gardens that will focus on medicinal plants and the use of uh, medicinal plants in modern medicine and um, their history too and that starts at half two and that's uh, at the Botanic Gardens in Glasnevin in Dublin okay. yeah Great. Um, the Alchemist Cafe in Dublin is hosting a talk by Vanessa Hyde about the monitoring of drug safety in Europe and that takes place on the 24th of September as well and that's at 7.30pm in the Mercantile Hotel in Dublin um, and finally First Fridays are back at uh, Blackrock Castle Observatory in Cork um, this regular monthly event kicks off at 6pm uh, uh, with family friendly uh, space age workshops and craft activities um, then at 7pm there's the Cork Science Cafe uh, followed by lectures from some visiting speakers um, and visitors can expect star parties, lectures, night observations and star counts on the night. Uh, and the event is run in association with the Cork Astronomy Club. Um, so that's all for this week's events. Sounds great. Thanks, Lenny. And that's all we have time for with this episode of Cybernia. Big thanks to all our guests and thanks to Near FM as always. And thank you for listening. Don't forget you can find us online at cybernia.ie or download the latest episode from iTunes. You can find us on facebook.com slash cybernia or follow us on twitter.com forward slash cybernia. And you can always email us at podcast at cybernia.ie.